people want to shift the focus of the IPOs or uh, raising capital the, uh, to more sectors, more related to a new uh, industry, um, the new energy, and also uh, the advanced uh, manufacturing. This uh, more uh, um, the government want to see these uh, sectors have to be uh, be profited in the future, rather than. Uh, let those uh, sectors affecting people's livelihood or affecting the child barbarian, It's such a three-child policy. Mm. Uh, the daily uh, affecting the, the internal uh, consumption okay. uh, for those sectors, uh, non-profit. Yeah. Okay. Well, we must talk about this more with you because it's uh, a very important topic and I suspect the repercussions from this are going to go on for a while. Thank you very much, Yanan. Sure. That's Yanan Wu, Chairman of Zhenguang Bao up in Beijing. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, in the markets, the ASX 200 in Australia is up a quarter of a percent. Uh, over in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up about 1.7% playing catch-up as it was closed on Thursday and Friday. The Cosby is almost flat. Uh, looks like it's going to be a rather nasty open for the Hang Seng, though, reacting negatively to all these latest developments. Uh, futures markets indicating a decline of about 1%, and the Hang Seng very close to opening below 27,000. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is at $74.25 a barrel, and gold is trading at $1,800 an ounce. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk and stay tuned for Back Chats with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse in just a moment. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, few showers and thunderstorms, very hot during the day. That very hot weather warning is in force once again and it's going to be very hot tomorrow with a few showers as well. 29 degrees right now, 79% relative humidity. 8.32, Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. The head of Hong Kong's Equalities Office says it's drafting a bill to cover sexual minorities' rights, which are currently unprotected. Here's Francis Sid. Ricky Chu, the chair of the Equal Opportunities Commission, said the EOC is looking into ways to fill the legal vacuum and will publish a preliminary report within seven months for a public consultation. As about potential opposition from conservative legislators, he said he will be pragmatic by looking into the basic rights of sexual minorities, such as employment, education and travelling. Mr. Chu said he hopes to reach a consensus in the city and complicated issues, including same-sex marriage, will be left for the future. The head of the U.S. Central Command, General Kenneth McKenzie, says in Kabul that the U.S. will continue airstrikes in support of Afghan troops if the Taliban continue their offensive, but he refused to say whether they would carry on after the August 31st deadline, marking the formal end of the U.S. military mission. We will continue to support the Afghan forces even after that 31 August day. It will generally be from over the horizon. That will be a significant change. And then it will be time for Afghan forces to fight and carry on the battle themselves. We spent a lot of time training them. Now is their moment. Now is the time for that very stern test that I noted earlier they're going to face. I think they have the resources and the capability to, to actually conduct that fight and win it. The Taliban have made rapid territorial gains in recent months and they're now gearing up to attack the big cities. The South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is easing some COVID restrictions, saying the country has largely passed the peak of its third wave of the coronavirus. He explained the decline in infections. The average number of daily new infections over the last week was around 12,000 new infections a day, which represents a 20% drop from the previous week. 
In the last two weeks, the number of new infections in Gauteng, which has been the epicenter of the third wave, has steadily been declining. He's lifting a weekday ban on alcohol sales and schools can reopen today. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host this morning is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. <laughs> so this morning we're talking about the latest uh, on COVID-19 and uh, later on a call to organise better access to foreign language interpreters. Uh, Hong Kong's now gone seven weeks without a local coronavirus infection, but uh, many restrictions, of course, remain in place including social distancing measures, limits on public gatherings while uh, flights from high-risk places, including the UK, remain suspended and strict quarantine requirements remain in effect. Uh, meanwhile, England marked its so-called Freedom Day a week ago, ending almost all restrictions despite an increase in coronavirus cases. Is now the right time for us here in Hong Kong to ease some of the COVID-19 measures further? When should we open the border? And what should we make of England's policy? And from uh, 9.15 till 9.30, we're talking about the Ombudsman's observation that difficulties encountered by government departments in securing the services of foreign language and Chinese dialect interpreters can affect the efficiency of some of their operations. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Or better still, give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, this morning, uh, we, uh, we have on the line uh, Benjamin Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. And also um, in the studio with us, uh, we welcome David Costello, who's the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, good morning to you both. So, um, David, perhaps we can start with you. Um, so, uh, Ireland, of course, is also... Um, people coming from Ireland are required to quarantine for three weeks when they arrive in Hong Kong. Um, what, um, and, and yet your coverage, your vaccination coverage in Ireland is, is pretty high, isn't it, really? It's about half the population have had two doses. So, you know, what do you make of this situation? Uh, good morning, Jim and Mike. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's my first time here in Backchat. I, I've done Peter Lewis's show and I've done Phil's, so maybe I'd say this is the triple crown of, of morning TV in Hong Kong now, so I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, thanks for, for, for the opportunity to talk about it. I mean, Ireland has... Uh, has been had one of the stringest kind of uh, lockdown arrangements around around COVID. I mean, it's uh, ironically when I was reflecting over the weekend, it's now exactly eighteen months since the first case in Hong Kong, uh, and the first case in Ireland happened around early March, I think, is when we diagnosed the first one last year. So we had a very tough time of it in March, April, where peak deaths, I think, in Ireland were April of last year. Then we had another kind of peak around Christmas and early January where the cases were much, much higher than they were the previous April, but the death rates were lower. And now, you know, we're, you know, we're in a phase now where we're starting to open up again. And, and as with the opening up, we end up with a small increase again. But again, what's really interesting is, is you know, the, the, the contrast between the three peaks. 
and the, the death rates that have been happening as, uh, as we've been getting through the, the pandemic. That's because uh, the vaccine well, this is reduces it. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, mm. the, the spread and reduces the severity. Well, that, well, that's it, you know, and if you look at the figures that are being thrown out, I mean, at the moment we have, if you take, take it as a percentage of the population, 63% of the population have had one dose, 40% fully vaccinated. Now, we have the youngest population in Europe. You know, 22% of our population are under the age of 15 and not eligible to get a vaccine. So when you start to look at it as a percentage of the adult population, over four in five people have taken the vaccine at this stage in Ireland, and two in three are fully vaccinated. Uh, and what's remarkable is we've done this in a very strict age order, starting with the most vulnerable population and are working down to the youngest population. So everybody everybody over the age of 70 is vaccinated at this stage in Ireland and virtually everybody over the age of 50 is vaccinated. We're talking about 95% uh, kind of penetration rates in those age brackets. And the only reason the younger people are not vaccinated is we just can't get the supply quick enough. So we will be fully vaccinated. We will have herd immunity in the adult population really over the next couple of weeks. Mm. And we're seeing that as we're opening up as, you know, I mean, you know, you know the, I fully understand Hong Kong's concerns around Delta variants and, and different variants. You know, we had the Alpha variant in January. We're seeing the Delta variant now. But this is a worldwide pandemic. This is a variant that are impacting the entire world. Uh, yet in Ireland's case, you know, the rolling seven-day average of deaths is is one mm. um, in, in, in a situation where we're seeing hundreds of Be, cases Because you started with the most vulnerable and worked your way down. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. yeah. In so Hong Kong, we seem to be working in the opposite direction. Well, it, it, it's, it's a demand-led. Like, I mean, I've met Sophia Chan over the la a couple of times over the last few weeks because the issue of Ireland being A2 has been the single biggest concern for the community of our, here in Ireland, uh, the Irish community here in Hong Kong. They, they, they're just like asked and don't understand why Ireland is in this category. I mean, we, we are fully participating in this Reopen Europe initiative that started in Ireland last week. We have the digital COVID certificates that allows vaccinated people to travel freely within Europe. Uh, and this is, you know, and so we are, you know, despite, you know, many people in this part of the world think Brexit affected us and we've left the European Union. We haven't. We are. You're the, the guys who didn't we, leave. We're, we're, stay, we're staying and we are the one of the confirmed fans of Europe when you look at kind of uh, um, popular, you know, the kind of satisfaction rates of being of membership of the European Union. Ireland consistently ranks in the top, top, at, at the top or in the top one or two, you know. So so we are fully-fledged members of the European Union where we have a common travel arrangement uh, across the Union where we don't, you know, there's freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. That had been restricted during the pandemic, naturally, where people were encouraged not to travel. You know, there was freedom of movement in, in, uh, restricted in Ireland. People, since January, really, or since Christmas, people have been locked in their houses for 20 weeks where they were not allowed out except once a day, a uh, two kilometre radius from their front door. I mean, I've been telling people I'm stuck in Hong Kong for the last year and a half. And you're getting no sympathy. Yeah, you know, but Hong Kong is the size of a sizable county in Ireland, you know, and, and people are telling me, well, I haven't left five kilometres of my front door for 20 weeks, and you're complaining about only being able to walk and uh, do the hikes around Hong Kong or kind of visit the new territories, you know, or get on a ferry and go to Lama and have lunch, you know. We haven't had a restaurant open in six months. 
Um, so we've had a significant lockdown. The, you know, and I, I think maybe I think it's probably not understood. I think the government has handled it so well here in Hong Kong. The full impact of the pandemic worldwide has not been felt here. Uh, uh, but in Ireland it has and so when I met Sophie Chan a few weeks ago um, the first thing I did was commend her and her team on I mean despite her complaints and there's a lot of people complaints but they have been the hardest working people over the last 18 months Yes Uh, they have, (laughs) we have 5% vaccination rate on our elderly And she asked me that question how how are you managing to get that and I said well lock people up, you know when I was speaking to my my friend who's the same age as me, I said well what vaccine are you getting uh, a couple of weeks ago? He said, I really don't care. Shove anything in my arm so I can get out of my house. Can you tell us about these certificates for travelling within Europe, within the EU? Uh, recognised by all the governments in the EU? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's something that the European Council signed up to back in May. It's a, it's a recognised system for travel within the EU and it's reopening, reopening Europe, yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's bring in uh, Benjamin Cowling. Good morning to you. Good morning. What, what, what do you make of the uh, situation uh, in Ireland? Since we're talking about um, Ireland, um, um, they've got a pretty good, a pretty high uh, vaccination coverage. Um, so, uh, what, what's your assessment of what's happening there? I think the vaccine coverage is fantastic, and it, it really means that that uh, in the past year they've bought time for vaccines to be available with the with the lockdown measures that were that were that were put in place. They bought the time, they got the vaccines out, and now they, they can safely reopen. Um, I, I'm reluctant to, to say that there's going to be herd immunity. Certainly there's a high vaccine coverage, which protects them against uh, a large number of hospitalizations and, and severe COVID cases. Most likely they'll have an exit wave like the UK are having, but it will be generally mild infections. Uh, and that exit wave will be enough to, to bring the immunity level up to herd immunity. And then it, it uh, should be safe for quite a while from COVID. Um, and I think in Asia we'll be looking at places in, in Europe and, and wondering why we're still stuck with with uh, the strict measures and, and zero COVID strategies. You've said before that uh, people who are fully vaccinated should uh, perhaps be uh, subject uh, to less stringent quarantine requirements. Um, I mean, is that something that you know the the authorities here should be thinking about? Yeah, it, it does depend on what's the strategy, though. So. If your strategy in, in the place you are, if the, the political strategy is to minimize the number of COVID cases while you're buying time for vaccination coverage to get up to a higher level, as high level as possible, and then plan to reopen, it makes sense to give a lot of incentives for vaccination, including vaccine passes. But if your strategy, like what we're doing in Hong Kong right now and maybe doing for a while longer, if the strategy is to keep numbers as low as possible, then really one of the cornerstones of that is minimising travel, minimising inbound travel. So I'm actually a little bit concerned that the relaxations we've got in place today in Hong Kong for vaccinated travellers may not persist, because if we're going for zero COVID in the long term, then actually the the, the objective would be to minimise travel rather than facilitate travel. But Ben, good morning, Ben. Is is zero cases practicable now? Uh, well, I, I think it's the best measure, the, the best strategy in the short term to minimise the impact of COVID while we buy time for vaccines to be available. In the long term, I don't think it's the optimal strategy because there's going to be enormous economic and social costs of trying to stay at zero. And of course, we won't stay at zero the whole time. But if there are outbreaks, if there are cases, we'll, we'll, we'll try hard to get it back down to zero. Uh, I, I'm concerned that in the long term, it may not be the optimal strategy today, this month, 
it is the optimal strategy for Hong Kong because our vaccine coverage is still is still increasing. Still too low. Now, one of the things I was going to ask you, I think I saw a paper you wrote uh, which was talking about 80% uh, would more desirable for herd immunity. And I think one of the professors came out over the weekend and said 90%. Yeah, that was Yoon Kwok Young, yes. who's uh, also from the University right. of Hong Kong, yeah, government so advisor. Mm. What, what's, what's the thinking about this? Uh, so, so we have to distinguish two different things. One is the herd immunity, what, what, what level of immunity we need for herd immunity so that infections can't spread anymore. And the other is what, what coverage of vaccination do we want to go for? Because even if we get 100% vaccine coverage, we won't have herd immunity only through vaccination. We'll have to experience what the UK and most likely Ireland are, are experiencing, which is an exit wave of infections after we relax all the measures. Uh, and then you have the, vac the immunity from vaccinations plus the immunity from the exit wave brings you up to herd immunity. And then after that, COVID can't spread anymore. So, so whether it's 70, 80, 90 percent, the higher the better, because that will minimize the number of severe cases that, that we would have in an exit wave. But uh, I don't think there's a, there's a exact threshold for vaccine coverage. And I actually previously said once we go above 70 percent, then I, I think that's pretty good. That's a pretty good trigger to start relaxing all the measures and, and start learning to live with the virus. But uh, obviously, the higher, the better. Because that is the fundamental difference, is it? The people who are saying, OK, this is now endemic, we must learn to live with it. And the people who are saying, oh, there's a rumour of a case in Taiwan, we must shut the economy. Right. And I think in the short term, we, we do want to stay at zero cases because it's better for us to be at zero than to have to be fighting cases and and dealing with case numbers and, and, and having suppression measures for the longer term. But these are only supposed to be short-term measures to buy time for vaccines to be available. I don't think six months ago, 12 months ago, if you'd have said uh, in Hong Kong we're going to stay at zero COVID for years, people would have been too too excited about that idea. Mm. Yeah. Um, David uh, Costello, so um, what kind of difficulties have the quarantine requirements been uh, pr you know, presenting for people coming from Ireland or business people or families or whatever? Yeah, I mean, it, it is causing a lot of problems with the community. Um, the extended, uh, the extended quarantine arrangements, in particular, uh, we're the only country in the European Union that has to do the three-week hotel quarantine on arrival, uh, despite the fact that we have the best vaccine rates in the European Union. You know, so. Is, uh, is it, sorry, so, but do you think Ireland's being sort of unfairly lumped in with the United Kingdom in that respect? Um, there's an element of that. I, I, you know, I, you know, and in fairness to the government, you know, they they are flat out. You know, I, 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 I mean. I don't want to be critical of government at all. I mean, we, we went on to the A2 list, or, or as it was back in January, the A list, because we were hitting infection rates of close on 10,000 a day, okay, which is in two days almost more than what Hong Kong has experienced in the entire pandemic. So it was understandable. And at that point, the Alpha variant was quite prominent. Uh, it had started to spread um, uh, throughout Europe. And so there was an uncertainty around the Alpha variant. So I can understand the Hong Kong's government's cautiousness because of the lack of van vaccine penetration here. However, really since the beginning of February, the Irish vaccine or the Irish rates, rates have been at or below the European average and the vaccine rates have been at or above the European average really since February and in the last couple of weeks we, we, we've seen we've seen huge improvement in the vaccine rates. Uh, I mean we're top 14 in the world when you exclude small island states or small territories below a quarter of a million people you know so we are you know top top 14 at this stage and that's of the 
of the percentage of population. But if we only deal with those that are eligible to get it, we're up at the 80%. We're really top five uh, in terms of vaccine performance when you start to look at the the fact that we have such a young population. So I think the key to success in Ireland, I think, is 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 nobody. And I've, you know, I'm a huge fan of Benjamin. He talks so much sense. You know, I, I deliberately listen to the program to, to, to hear, hear hear him talk. He's uh, um, and he's absolutely right. You know, there's this kind of dichotomy between either or. But I think the success of Irish political leaders, in in particular, has, has and, and the European leaders as well, is they set out a roadmap. The roadmap was quite clear back in. January, February, March, which is we have to lock down, we have to protect the vulnerable population. But then we staged a roadmap, like today today is the first time Ireland is open to indoor dining in close on a year now at this stage. Right. Um, you know, so we have huge parts of the economy that are shut down. Um, um, you know, but again, again, the measures taken to support that is, is phenomenal. Like, I mean, the fur, the average furlough payment. You know, you know, we talk about the five thousand kind of uh, dollar consumption scheme here. That's the average fortnightly payment to furloughed workers in Ireland. So you've had a lot of applicants for Irish nationality. Well, <laughs> well, Ireland was always a popular place anyway, you know, and uh, and in fact, you know, the, you know, I could sp- spend the rest of the show just talking about the connections between Ireland and Hong Kong. They're phenomenal, they're deep, you know, 30 streets named after Irish people here, you know, and, and, and in fact... And, yeah. yeah, but not just that. Two of your Olympians are, are, are of Irish heritage and we're going to be Siobhan, shouting, Siobhan. shouting for Siobhan Hawley tonight yeah. as she makes her debut in the Olympics so we're delighted for her and Thomas Heffernan Ho in the eventing as well so uh, so yes you know so so I think the key here is um, you know and it's not my place to tell the government how to do their job here but I mean signaling creating a roadmap giving the incentive for people to take vaccines understanding that on the first of whatever September for argument we opened up to to vaccinated travels on the first of October we start to resume for tourism for vaccinated travelers or, or whatever the strategy is you know but once it's a clear roadmap then it's understood the direction of travel and here is pu- around public support vaccines. public support got something to relate to yeah, completely. You know, it's, you know, I mean, Ireland, you know, what's been interesting is Ireland has always trusted the science. You know, when you see the international response, you hear Irish voices like Emer Cook is in the European Medicines Agency. She's been front and centre from the European perspective. Dr. Mike Ryan is probably the most well-known voice internationally on COVID and another great Irishman, you know, so, so, you know, so the combination of being completely locked in your home for periods of 20 weeks and more, Two, um, two Irish voices, uh, you know, and, and, and also I think one of the big exports from Ireland, you know, what's not often understood is actually despite this kind of stringent lockdown, which completely shut down the domestic economy, we still have an export led growth in Ireland. The economy grew by 3% last year driven by exports, from the, particularly from the pharma and IT sectors, you know. So I think we were, as a small island of uh, five, our population of five million people, I think we were the fifth biggest exporter of pandemic-related materials uh, last year. So, so it is a very contrasting story. Uh, but I think what the lesson from Europe has been quite clear is signalling a roadmap, giving people a vision for a couple of weeks out, a couple of months out, you know, this is where we're going to, you know. And so from here, from a Hong Kong perspective, I'm really excited so, about the Hong Kong Sevens in November and I'm looking forward to it, you know, because uh, and what that looks like. I, my fingers are crossed, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> and I may even have to go back to church and start praying again, but... 
I'm not that optimistic. It's because well, we're obsessed with this, you know, um, there mustn't be any cases at all, rather than there are going to be a few, but we've got to balance off the effect on social and e- econ. Well, well, in fairness, I mean, as we've seen, one case leads very quickly to 20, which leads very quickly to hundreds and thousands. So, so if you're in a strategy where you are containing the virus and eliminating it, that's the way you have to behave. And, and so the kind of, uh, you know, but... The question here is, there's no, you know, if you're reluctant, if you're concerned about the, the, the vaccine, uh, you're in a zero COVID situation. This is zero COVID here. You know, you it's are absolutely kind forever. of... Forever. Well, well, as long as there's a continuous lockdown uh, in terms of international travel, it's not. Uh, it, it will be that situation, you know. And, and, you know, as an international person here in Hong Kong, you know, I see Hong Kong as an international city. You know, there is a language and a narrative around that's got very polarised recently talking about Hong Kong as a Chinese city. Uh, but, but it's not. It's an international city, you know. Now, let me be clear it's Chinese sovereignty, just like it was British sovereignty pre-97, but, you know, 30 streets named after Irish people, even when it was British sovereignty, it was still an international city. Uh, and this is a key part of the DNA of Hong Kong, and this is why Irish businesses come to Hong Kong, because it's a gateway into Europe, just like Ireland, or gateway into mainland China and into Asia, just like Ireland is a gateway into Europe. So we share a lot of commonality. We are common law countries. We're English-speaking. We have so much connectivity in terms of our, our, our position uh, on a respective continent. And to, for that to succeed, international travel is a key part of the DNA of the city. Right. Um, and, you know, th- this the remarkable, I, I'm a, you know, and I, I'm very careful, you know, I, I think I saw Benjamin quote of the weekend saying that most locations in the world will learn to live with the virus, managing it in the same way as they do with the seasonal flu. Uh, and... Hong Kong has been phenomenally successful in dealing with SARS. You know, it was a traumatic impact on 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 the region. You know, Um, unfortunately, if we had have listened, if the world had listened to Hong Kong's approach eighteen months ago and contained the virus and eliminated it, the zero COVID strategy might have worked. It won't work because it's too endemic in parts of the world like Africa and Latin America and others and variants just like the flu will become it. Many states mm. of the USA. Yeah, and, and and I don't want to diminish no. the kind of the scale and the impact of this particular virus. It is lethal. It is very, very dangerous, you know, but vaccines I are would, the way forward. I want to ask before the news, yeah. I want to ask Ben, mm. um, how do we get the vaccination rate up? Well, I think that the easiest way would be to have a roadmap for, for reopening and relaxing all the COVID measures. If you say, starting in October, starting in November, we're going to relax international travel, we're going to relax the other, the, the gathering bans and the mandatory masking and so on. I think people will be then rushing to get vaccinated before we reopen because they recognise it's important. But as long as we're at zero COVID, a, uh, a segment of the population will think there's no risk to them, no need to, to go and get the vaccine because it's not necessary yet. Um, and the talk about boosters is that if you get vaccinated now, you might need a booster next year. I can understand some people thinking maybe they'll just wait and get it, get get the vaccine next year so they don't need to go back again for the booster. So if we have a roadmap, I think that would make a massive difference. But, but so far, we, we don't really have a roadmap. Um, ben, uh, we've got a couple of minutes before the news. Can we just talk about what's happening in uh, England just uh, f- for a while? Because, of course, uh, they've pretty much completely opened up. Um, what do you make of that situation? 
Yeah, I think when, when we judge decisions that are made, we've got to look at the options, plan A, plan B, plan C, and then think about what's the pros and cons of each one. So although opening up is going to result in an exit wave, there's going to be a lot of cases in the coming months, there's going to be people hospitalized even. The other choices, if that's plan A, plan B or plan C was just to prolong the lockdown, open in a few months' time, and then still have an exit wave, still have those infections, still have the hospitalizations. So really, the, the, the choice to open now with the Freedom Day is the best of bad choices because there weren't any better choices available. And the exit wave, I think, is inevitable once you relax the measures uh, because there's still some people susceptible to COVID in the community and uh, you, you can't keep the virus out forever. So, so in the UK, they are now going to learn to live with the virus. They have an exit wave this summer. Hopefully the virus won't be back this winter. If it is, it will just be like the seasonal flu. Um, we're all crossing our fingers that we don't see any more variants that are worse than Delta um, because, because Delta is, is, a, is really a big challenge. You can see across Asia, it's really posing major problems for places that have been successful for the past year. And so, I, yeah, for the UK, I think that they've made a reasonable decision, although it's not, it's not a great decision, but there were no better decisions available. What about this um, low efficacy of Sinovac? Are we going to have to address that at some point? Well, so if we have a roadmap, then I would say one of the components of the roadmap to reopening would be to, to arrange for booster shots for people who got Sinovac earlier this year, uh, who may be more vulnerable now than, than in the past because of the, the uh, lower antibody levels after vaccination. But remember that, that Sinovac saved many, many lives in Asia. Oh, yes. uh, it's highly effective against severe disease. And so it's not a bad vaccine. It's a good vaccine. It's just that the BioNTech is better. And, and if we want to minimize the number of infections occurring, the number of cases, then, then probably we would want to give boosters to people who got the Sinovac vaccine. But um, okay, okay. I, I want to be very clear that it's a good vaccine. Yeah. It's ben. a good vaccine. It's saved many, many lives. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, we'll return to this uh, three minutes past nine after the news summary. Um, before we do, a quick look at the weather. Sunny periods, a uh, few showers and thunderstorms, very hot during the day. Top temperature, uh, 33 degrees. Um, currently, the temperature is 30 degrees, humidity 79%, and the very hot weather warning is in effect. Has largely passed the peak of its third wave of the virus. He's lifting a weekday ban on alcohol sales and is allowing movement between provinces. Schools can reopen today. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, uh, we're talking about uh, all matters relating to uh, COVID-19. There's always things happening over the weekend, so Monday mornings we usually like to catch up on the, on the latest. Uh, in the studio with us is David Costello, the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Also on the line, uh, Benjamin Cowling, who's the uh, head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at Hong Kong University. And on on the line, joining us on the line now as well, uh, Paul Leung, who, Chairman of the Hong Kong Inbound Travel Association. Um, Paul Leung, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. Good morning so we were, to you. We were talking before nine o'clock about um, uh, quarantine requirements and restrictions on travel and so on. Um, mm. um, do you think that uh, now might be the time to start uh, start easing some of the quarantine requirements? I mean, we, we've gone seven. Hong Kong's gone seven weeks without a local 
COVID-19 infection. Uh, uh, testing regime is, uh, is, is tried and reliable. Um, what, what do you think we should be doing? Because obviously the, the travel industry is still hurting a lot. Yeah, as far as the travel industry concerned, I think uh, we should uh, seize uh, a bit of them. Because uh, uh, as of now, uh, we, uh, we do not have any cases for the last, uh, last uh, almost 40 days. So um, uh, actually, uh, at the moment, for the local tour, we should uh, uh, quite uh, uh, re- uh, see some restrictions, uh, such as because uh, when we are going along the public transport, uh, like uh, you go on the bus, MTR or ferry, we, we, we do not have any restrictions. But if you are going on the tour on the tr- on the tourist bus, and there is a lot of restrictions, uh, such as uh, we do not uh, allow to have uh, more, more than half of the capacity of the bus. Uh, uh, roughly, we, we we only our whole bus can only have about 23. That's only applied to to the local tour, such as the green tour or some of the the redeemed tour uh, from from the government. So I, I think the, the, at the moment, I think we should relax some of the uh, green tour so that we can have more some business uh, for our business, uh, such as we should uh, relax from, from, from half of the capacity to 75 or 90 percent. Right. But you're talking uh, about tours of Hong Kong people going around Hong yes. Kong. Right. What right, about right. people coming in from overseas? Yeah. Who's going yeah, to come for three weeks or two weeks or even one week uh, yeah, quarantine? If are, yeah, if you are talking about inbound travel, uh, at the moment it's zero. So uh, I, I, I think the government should allow those who have already have two doses. They finish the two doses and then and after 14 days, and they, they should allow them to come. So without any quarantine. So if if you are if you are so straight on the quarantine, 28 days, 21 days, or 14 days, uh, quarantine, and uh, you, you have to lock them in the hotel. So nobody will come. No, uh, even those business travel is hard for them to to, to come. Right. Uh, if they yeah, if they should they should um, uh, uh, see some of these restrictions. For example, they can apply some of the conditions, uh, like uh, they they should have the two doors, and after 14 days, and also they they got to uh, have uh, uh, check again, and you know, and after and also with insurance. So uh, and also they should have uh, full full details on. Uh, uh, where they are going, or what, what they are going, or, or uh, travel agents supposed to be uh, taking care of them. So, I think it works. Uh, hmm. uh, at least the Hong Kong people can go out also, you know, to Macau. But at the moment, uh, the, the government not even allow them to go out. Well, yeah, Macau so. won't let us in, so it's. <laughs> yeah. I think the government no. here would let us out, but then if we come back from Macau. It's another two weeks or one week. So, yeah, I'd love to go to Macau. Number one, Macau won't let me in at the moment. And number two, if I go to Macau because they change their mind, I've got to do one or two weeks quarantine when I come back. It's killing all the traffic in both directions. 
Yeah, so that that's the point that the government should discuss with the with the government. This is uh, an entirely not 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 in the in in our business uh, party. You know, we have to talk to the government. The government right. should talk to the government uh, or talk or talk to the central government. Uh, uh, we can also apply conditions on those, right? Of, of, of course, we cannot open the door for everybody come in or everybody go out. So uh, uh, no, nobody will welcome you, you know. But if you are going to have uh, 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 all these uh, conditions, such as uh, you, you are going to have all the the door to, to finish the two doors and then 14 days or or whatever uh, insurance, etc. Then, then right. we can talk about it, right? We can and talk about it. Ben, yeah. before, while we still got Ben on the line, can I ask about child vaccinations? How low uh, do we go in Hong Kong at the moment? Is it 18 and above? And how much lower should we be thinking about? Well, we, we're going to 12 now. So 12 and above right. can get the BioNTech vaccine. Uh, I know that some of the vaccine companies are doing trials in younger children. I think Sinovac just did a trial in children of all ages, um, actually. But um, the, for younger children, because COVID's, such a mild infection there's very 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 low risk of covid in younger children then you start to get into the question of benefits versus risks and so um in the uk actually they, they decided not to vaccinate children of any age uh, up, up to age 18 i think only 18 and above can get vaccinated um and that must have been based on a risk benefit calculation um, so in Hong Kong, I, let, let's see what happens when, when the possibility is there to reduce the age of, of uh, for vaccination. But um, I, I still think in Hong Kong, the priority has got to be vaccinating the elderly and having a roadmap to, to resume normal activities. If we're really going to stay at zero COVID for another year or more, then maybe vaccinating younger children won't be a priority. OK, uh, we have a, an email on... Uh uh, this subject, in fact, uh, from Doug, says, uh, Dear Backchat, the latest call for vaccination coverage of 90% of the population is surely unachievable unless children under the age of 12 years are included. Indeed, even if, sorry, even the 70% coverage without including children under 12 years would mean about 100% of the general population above 12 years to be vaccinated. Also unachievable, question mark. Any, uh, oh, no, I, yeah. I think that if you if you take the children below 12 out of it, we can get up to about 90%. But um, I mean, whether that's realistic or not, I don't know. And without a roadmap for the for the timeline to reopen, then then uh, talking about the vaccine coverage necessary to reopen doesn't really make sense. I'd rather do it the other way around and say, okay, first thing we want to reopen in October. First thing we want to reopen in November, and then say what what kind of vaccine coverage are we looking for, and what are we going to do as the use of the triggers. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would be a better way to, to think about it. OK. Another one here from Nick says, uh, we hear of a few cases where fully vaccinated people have tested positive for COVID. Would Professor Cowling please expand on if there is now research into whether these cases are shedding the virus or if the risks from a vaccinated person who tests positive infecting others is significantly reduced or even zero? Well, so, so firstly, va vaccinated people are much less likely to get infected in the first place. If they do get infected, it's more likely to be an asymptomatic or very mild infection. But there is still a chance that a vaccinated person could have an infection that's contagious, could have some symptoms. There have even been in the U.S. reports of people being hospitalized or even dying from COVID after being fully vaccinated. 
So the vaccines are not 100%. They're very effective. They reduce the risk at every level. They reduce the risk of infection, reduce the risk of symptoms, reduce the risk of transmission, reduce the risk of hospitalization, whatever. But if the specific question is referring to the idea of, of, of uh, reductions for vaccinated travelers, we can use that as an incentive. We can say fully vaccinated travelers can, can have a, a relaxation of the quarantine requirements or whatever. But um, if our aim is zero COVID, then actually the, the, the best way to go for zero COVID is to minimize travel, unfortunately. Um, so I, I hope that's not the direction we're taking. But, but uh, from what I'm hearing, it, it, it may be. So I, I'm concerned that actually in the next 12 months, it may be more difficult to travel than it has been in the past 12 months. Because if we're still going for zero COVID, minimal travel would be the, the best way to sustain that. Okay, and uh, thanks. Uh, and one here for David. Uh, this one, this, this is from Anna, who is... Uh uh, well, and it says, please ask David, David Costello, this is the uh, Irish Consul General. Has he any indication from the Hong Kong government when the three-week quarantine will be lifted? Well, we're in regular contact with the government and they have uh, signalled that they're actively reviewing the situation for, for us. Um, um, so, but uh, this is a decision really, you know, a lot of people come to us in the office, but... The answer is this is a matter entirely for the for the Hong Kong government. But they, you know, we are engaging. We're providing data. We've met them. I've met Sophia twice. Uh, you know, they're extraordinarily helpful. Uh, but but ultimately, it's their call. I think that's really part of the problem. I think as well from the community's perspective is that they are uh, struggling a bit with you know the shutdown. You know, things shut down very very quickly, and then there's no clear roadmap about right. what's coming in two months' time. All things being, equal. are we are we actually <coughs> locked in the embrace of the mainland and Macau? And as as long as the mainland is sort of pursuing virtually zero and almost achieving it, and sort of down to ten, twenty cases a day, that we'll have to be. Well, that's, that's what the Hong Kong government will need to signal to you. I mean, there's a lot of reports to say that, but we don't know that. They're not saying right. that. The government's not saying that to us, and, and it's not being said out loud. Because so. we're, we're sort of saying, yes, I'd love to go to Thailand, where I've got other grandchildren, mm -hmm. and like to maybe pop back to England and see a brother. But the mainland and Macau are the obvious outlets mm -hmm. for us, and the immediate one, and then they're not... They're not open at all. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's there's just no no openness. I mean, there are there's some traffic. I mean, you go to the airport, there's a considerable reduction in the amount of uh, flights. All right, uh, but but there, there's still a lot of traffic on those flights. Sadly, some of it's one way and not the other. You know, but uh, but I mean, there is a human issue here. I mean, I, I was reflecting a little bit. Um, uh, it's a hundred years ago since the Spanish flu outbreak. Um, and uh, looking at the figures, somewhere between 17 and 100 million people died during that two-year outbreak. Uh, at the moment, it's four, just over 4 million worldwide from, from, from COVID. Um, but we don't shut down every year since when there's a flu outbreak. And, you know, and, and again, I don't want to minimise the impact of COVID. I mean, what the government have done here for the past 18 months has been the right strategy, right. you know. But we don't shut down because we now have vaccines. 
you know, they're relatively effective. You know, there's still people die from the flu every year despite the availability of vaccines, you know. Uh, but, I mean, the, the, the clear direction of travel here is is vaccination is the way forward and really when you look at the how the world has responded in the space of 18 months to have the variety of vaccines available to have the efficacy rates on some of these vaccines are stunning you know uh, and they're and they're far more effective in fact than, than seasonal flu vaccines are despite where the fact that we're living with that for 100 years ben, ben what's the indication from the mainland I think they, they, they've said in, in uh, I've seen reports in the South China Morning Post that in the mainland they're planning to stay with zero COVID strategy until maybe next summer because they've got some things coming up, the Winter Olympics and maybe some other things as well and they really want to stay at zero COVID until then and the vaccines they've been using of course will, are not as effective as some of the other vaccines being used around the world so if, if COVID got in, as we've seen actually recently in Guangzhou and right now in, in Nanjing once COVID gets in, it can spread pretty easily still, despite high vaccine coverage. Right. So I, I think they're very aware that, that they're not ready to reopen. But they're, they're working really hard on mRNA themselves. Any, they've any got their own mRNA vaccine that they're testing uh, in, in a multinational study, and they're also going to start making the BioNTech vaccine soon in, in Shanghai. So they will have those available. Maybe they'll use those as boosters next year and then think about reopening in the summer. But I'd be worried that the that there's always something around the corner that we can't anticipate. So, so by then, maybe there'll be, there'll be another reason to, to, to stay closed for longer. At the minute, it, it's more like kicking the can down the road. OK. Um, and another one for uh, Paul Leung before we uh, uh, wrap up uh, this uh, section of the programme. Um, um, so, Mr Leung, I was reading the other day that uh, Cathay Pacific has been um, testing or uh, trialling the use of COVID test and vaccination records with uh, customers on flights between Hong Kong and Singapore um, uh, with a view to uh, creating uh, uh, digital health passes um, is that the way to go for the travel industry? Do you think we'll all, we'll all need some sort of a, you know, a COVID record so that we can travel in and out of Hong Kong? Oh, if, if that is the international rule, I think we, we, we agree on that. You know, we, we, uh, we'll, we, we'll, we will support that because uh, if, if it happens, so uh, uh, not only Singapore and the other places can do but if it is only Singapore, right, I, I don't think it, it, it works too much on that. No. Uh. No. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, well. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on the program uh, this morning, uh, Paul Leung there, the uh, chairman of the Hong Kong Inbound uh, Travel Association. Thanks very much to David Costello, the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau, and uh, thank you uh, again to Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong. Uh, thanks all very much. Um, COVID nineteen. This is uh, an issue that uh, goes on and on. We'll be returning to it, uh, no doubt, uh, very soon. Maybe later this week. Um, moving on now, uh, we want to talk for uh, a little while about um, a call uh, by the Ombudsman who uh, made the observation that uh, certain government departments were encountering difficulties in securing the services of foreign language and Chinese dialect interpreters, uh, which uh, had a possible impact on the efficiency of their operations. And we're joined on the line by uh, Professor uh, Sing King Koi, who's the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at UOW College, Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to you. 
Oh, good morning. So, um, uh, how, how do you uh, assess this uh, situation with uh, f- uh, foreign language interpreters? I mean, the, 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 the ombudsman was saying uh, you know, we should have a proper database that people can approach. Uh, is what, what's the situation like now in your, your view? Is it a bit sort of ad hoc, or, or how is it? Uh, but uh, looking at the report, uh, what transpired from the report, uh, as I read it, it seems to me that the ombudsperson, Ms. Winnie Chu, uh, is technically prudent and not brave enough to address the real issue. Uh, I'm afraid you won't give me enough time to explain. <laughs> uh, well, well, please take a few minutes and, uh, yeah, try, try, try to give us the uh, summarised version. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, as we all uh, see, you know, the, this report uh, is not the outcome uh, of an investigation into a complaint, uh, in this case, as we know, against the uh, judicial administration. And uh, the uh, ombudsperson simply accepted you know, the J.A.'s uh, new practice of not sharing uh, the uh, list of registered interpreters to other government bureaus and uh, departments. And uh, so, uh, and, and on that basis, you know, the bus person simply uh, accepted uh, the new practice as a given fact and uh, tried to find a way to get around uh, that by exploring uh, what the Constitutional and Main and Affairs Bureau, the CMAB, can do to implement its administrative guidelines on promotion of racial equality, uh, which require that all government bureaus and departments uh, and related organizations under the purview have a responsibility to provide appropriate interpretation services to public service users where necessary. And um, so, of course, we may wonder why the ombudsperson was so prudent as not to make any comment on Jay's new practice. And as a matter of fact, shortly after JA launched the new practice, a freelance interpreter uh, filed an application for judicial review in 2019, contending that uh, Jay's new practice was against the legitimate expectation of the freelance interpreters that, that their uh, names would continue to be made available to other government bureau departments. And uh, this is very important. In defense uh, of the new practice, uh, the JA put forth two reasons. And... Uh, First, uh, a claim uh, that the old practice had led to you know, misguided belief that the JA was the provider or overseer of the interpretation services provided by the freelance interpreters and on the register list. And hence, JA had an obligation to meet the operational demands in terms of interpretation services. Second, and uh, this is more, you know, the uh, uh, you know, the strong ground for them. Uh, the old practice might affect the judiciary's impartial image uh, if it is seen to be functioning as an agent in providing court proceedings, uh, mm-hmm. providing interpretation support to other government bureau departments, which mm-hmm. would sometimes become parties to court proceedings. Like the police, for instance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah there's two reasons, you know, the, uh, were accepted by the court as, I quote, perfectly sound and rational. And as a result, uh, the application was dismissed. 
So since there's already a court ruling on the legitimacy of Jane's new practice, so we can see it will be very difficult for the ombudsperson to query its legitimacy. So this is a point uh, many people... Professor Sin, good good morning. I, I want to ask you something. Just for the benefit of listeners, JA, of course, is Judiciary Administrator. Yeah. Um, if if the judiciary have good reason not to be maintaining a comprehensive list, who else should maintain a comprehensive list? Because it's not only court cases where you need interpretation, is it? There's the Social Welfare Department might be interviewing someone and they need to talk to that person in their own language. Hospital authorities. Hospital authorities and so on. So, so who else is better placed to maintain a central register. And, uh, you know, the, in the government, we know, and uh, the, uh, uh, the section, uh, there's many responsible for translation and interpretation services. Services is the official languages, you know, the agency. But uh, as the name suggests, you know, the, that agency is mainly responsible uh, for, you know, the uh, interpretation, uh, translation between the right. two official languages. And, uh, but now we're talking about, you know, the interpreters of foreign languages, you know, the ranging from French to other South Asian languages. And uh, unless we extend, you know, the, the responsibility of the agency, and uh, so there's nowhere you know, in the government which is responsible for, you know, the hosting of this kind of information. So someone somewhere has got to have their remit extended or this situation yes. will just carry on. But that's you know, the, exactly the point. You know, the, if we know uh, the information we need for interpretation services is already somewhere you know, the, in a known source, in, in this case of JA. So the, just to address Jay's concerns about his uh, infected image, so why can't JA continue to make the list available to other government bureaus and departments and as an expedient measure with a clear qualification that it should not be regarded as functioning as an agent uh, for providing interpreting services, that it should not be held responsible for monitoring the performance mm. of individual freelance interpreters, so on and so forth. And as we can see, a lot of time and money will have to be spent to follow the recommendations of the uh, report. And I wonder and whether this is efficient public administration, as stated in the vision of the ombuds, ombudsman's office. You, you can understand if... if <laughs> We're putting, wearing, wearing right. a different hat. We, we have the information. We have the information. Right. But it's just the misgiving of the JA uh, that uh, it, it, its image may be affected. But, but uh, that can be easily addressed. Uh, right? you, if you put the caveats on the record, it has some effect. But on the other hand, because I, I used to have to deal with this situation when I was in the ICAC, um, we were told that we, we, we were okay because we could go to the judiciary uh, list. But... Uh, what we're saying in that, and now is it's not quite the same. Um, someone, someone's got to take responsibility for the standard. You're bound to go back and say to the person, well, we got terrible translation and there was a miscarriage of justice because of the guy whose name you gave us. Then it doesn't matter what kind of caveat the, J, the judiciary administrator put on provision of the information, uh, he's bound to get that that feedback. 
Uh, you know, the, as an instructor myself, you know, the, our performance may vary. So, the, you know, the, even if, you know, the JA, uh, you know, the shared uh, is list uh, with other departments, and uh, it's not under no obligation, uh, you know, the, in, in, for the individual cases uh, to be re- responsible for their performance. And uh, I think there's a point that must be made clear uh, to the users of interpretation services. Yes, okay. But of course, the only way to judge a Hindi interpreter, the caliber of his work, is, is to get a panel of Hindi interpreters. Uh, of course, right. You know, uh, you need more experienced person to assess the performance of a junior interpreter or less experienced interpreter. Uh, that goes without saying. Okay. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Professor uh, Sin King Koi there, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at UOW College, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Um, And just before we come to the end of the programme, I've got a few emails here uh, relating to last Friday's uh, back chat when, of course, uh, we had the Chief Executive, uh, Carrie Lam, on the programme with uh, the hosts, uh, Hugh Chiverton and Carrie. Karen Coe. Um, so this one uh, from Matthew. Uh, Matthew writes, uh, listening to Friday's back chat programme with the CE was like uh, spending an, an hour in a weird equals Orwellian twilight zone, uh, which turns out to be our actual reality. The twisted dystopian rhetoric of Carrie Lam was not that surprising, although the boldness of the lies is always a bit of a shock. What was more surprising and disturbing to me is that after days of calling for listeners to send questions, Backchat decided not to ask a single listener question. The superficial reason given for this was that there were too many questions. This is as nonsensical as the CE's own double talk. Too many listeners had questions for the CE, so we decided to ask none. Really? Well, um, I would say that uh, that uh, Hugh Chiverton did indeed ask listeners uh, to write in with questions for the CE. There were a great many emails. Um, the points raised uh, in the emails, the questions asked, uh, were sort of uh, formed the basis of uh, Hugh's uh, interview um, with the CE. We decided uh, that was the best way to do it. I thought it was a pretty lively interview. Uh, it, it, it created um, uh, yeah, a lot of reaction. It certainly uh, did, yeah. on social media yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I, I, I can't get to hear other back chats every day, but certainly for that one... I, I stayed uh, stayed at home, glued to the radio. Right, it was okay. really gripping. Well, there's a couple more, couple, uh, a couple more for you, Mike. Uh, so uh, this this one from um, uh, actually can't see can't see quite see the uh, uh, Peter, I think. Yeah. Uh, in your discussion with Chief Executive, you asked the lady to cite specific cases where foreign interventions were involved in the 2019 riot. The CE declined to answer the question because she did not want to comment on pending court cases. While government officials are restricted to comment on matters tangential to pending court cases, I suggest that uh, you go with investigative journalists who have been tracking this. One reliable source I go with is the Grey Zone. They did a lot of topics on Hong Kong during the 2019 riot. 
Uh, below are reporting on Hong Kong showing evidence of foreign intervention in the 2019 riot. I wish you could invite uh, Max Blumenthal, Ajit Singh or Ben Norton on your show to talk about the work of American National Endowment for Democracy, the NED, State Department and the CIA. And, uh, and the email also contains a link uh, to the Grey Zone site. Uh, this one um, from Bowen, uh, dear Backchat. To be fair to Karen Coe, the co-host on Friday, who host, uh, yeah, who co-hosted last Friday's show, she had not said anything wrong before the CE warned her that she was treading on dangerous lines. The point she made about the government's using the police as a response to a political problem in 2019 had been made before, sometimes uh, by highly qualified people like Chris Patton, who said at the time the government used the police as a substitute for policy. The CE's immediate interject interjection that it was a security instead of a political problem needs to be qualified. It, uh, it was just a political problem before violence on protesters by the police and other groups and the government's lack of response and political solutions eventually made it a security problem. Uh, that uh, from uh, Bowen. Um, thank you very much. Thank you to everybody for all your emails. Uh, thanks to our guests this morning. Um, thank you to uh, Mike Rouse. Always a pleasure. And, uh, just before we go, uh, we're going to have a, a quick look at the weather. So there will be sunny periods today. Uh, also a few showers and thunderstorms. Um, very hot during the day with a top temperature about 33 degrees. Uh, uh, that's in the urban areas. A couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Light to moderate southwesterly winds. The outlook still very hot tomorrow with a few showers. Uh, showers will increase gradually. Uh, with a few thunderstorms in the middle and latter parts of this week. Currently it's 30 degrees, humidity 78% and the very hot weather warning is in effect. Registration for the Consumption Voucher Scheme has started. Eligible Hong Kong permanent residents and new arrivals aged 18 or above can register at consumptionvoucher.gov.hk or submit a paper form to designated banks or post offices before August 14th. Choose among Alipay HK, Octopus, Tap & Go, or WeChat Pay HK to receive your $5,000 consumption voucher by installments. Spending together, boosting the economy. And now the new summary with Samantha Butler. Epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling says Hong Kong's zero COVID strategy is appropriate right now, but isn't good for the long term due to the economic and social costs. Professor Cowling from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health said anti-epidemic measures here could be eased once there was over 70 percent vaccine coverage. The South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is easing some COVID restrictions, saying the country has largely passed the peak of its third wave of the coronavirus. He's lifting a weekday ban on alcohol sales and is allowing movement between provinces. And the head of the U.S. Central Command, General Kenneth McKenzie, says in Kabul that the U.S. will continue airstrikes in support of Afghan troops if the Taliban continues their offensive. But he refused to say whether they would carry on after the August the 31st deadline, marking the formal end of the U.S. military mission. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer and Interpreter of Beethoven. And by also shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. In-depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and 